sound good. All right, uh, good morning. Uh, we're, we're in part five, I believe, of a series called Follow. And uh, Follow is a series where we're looking at Luke chapter six through seven. It's part of a series of a bigger series. We're trying to get through the entire book of Luke, and it's the longest, one of the longest books in the New Testament. So we have our work cut out for us. Okay, today we're going to be looking at chapter seven, the first part, verses one through ten. And so if you're following along, you know where we're going, because I'm not going to talk about those verses until halfway through the sermon. So in case you're like, where's Cost going with this? I'm eventually going to get there. All right. So um, this, uh, just so you know, um, this week was a really tough week for me because uh, I, I got the stomach bug. Uh, I don't know. It's going around. As a matter of fact, um, my family's not here because they still have it. And now I found out that my father-in-law Pastor Stan, he's not here because he has it. So <laughs> we're just spreading the love, you know, because we're a close family. Um, but you know what I've discovered through this time is that um, uh, the, our, the question of trust and faith has come into play <laughs> through all this. Uh, the question I want to bring up to you guys today is this. How much do you trust God? How much do you trust God? This, no, I, I don't know if you can measure it. I don't know if there's like a scale or anything like that. But um, when it, and, and it's easy to give a quick answer to say, oh, I trust him with all my heart, or I, I trust him a little bit, or, you know. But if I were to break it down to categories, then you might have a different answer. For example, when it comes to health, like my, the stomach bug we had, I'm the kind of person that has a lot of faith in God. So when first my son started, started throwing up, I was like, it's going to be fine. You know, he's going he's to live. God's going to take care of this. Right? But my wife has absolutely no faith. Like when it comes, she has a very strong trust in God, but when it comes to health, she has very little trust in God. Like she's like, yeah, no, no, he's, he's going to die. You know? <laughs> like she started panicking. She couldn't sleep that night because she was worried. And she's like, now the whole family's going to, now she was right. She, the whole family did eventually get it. But you know, the whole family was like, we're going to be fine. And she was really panicking. She, she took time off work because she didn't know what to do. And, you know, but, but that's the thing is she has very little faith when it comes to health. But when it comes to finances, she has the biggest faith that I've ever seen. She's like, God, everything's going to be fine. God's going to take care of our finances. I'm not there. I, I'm, right now, my wife and I, were looking for a home, our first home. And uh, when it comes to that, you know, I'm like, we've got to buy soon because the, the, the prices of the homes are going up so high. We're not, we're not going to be able to afford anything. She's like, God, God's, God, God's going to find a home for us. We're going to be fine. So when it comes to health, I have like a big amount of faith. But when it comes to finances and buying big, really expensive things, I have very little faith. Whereas like my wife, we're opposites in that case. But, you know, in some people, um, you have a lot of faith in health. You have a lot of faith in finances. But you really don't have that much trust in God when it comes to relationships. You're like, oh, I'm going to be single forever. <laughs> right? But there's some people who have a lot of faith in that area. I'm confident God's going to bring somebody into my life. Yeah, it's, I know. Or some, you already know who it is. You know, you're like, no, yeah, we're going to get married. And that other person's kind of freaked out because you're like, what? what? <laughs> but, you know, but every, everybody. So when I ask you the question, how much do you trust God? You know, it's easy to give a general answer. But when you break it down to certain categories, you realize that it's actually different for different things. You know, um, but in, in the examples that I gave, you notice one thing, which is the word for trust, I've interchanged it with the word faith. In other words, how much faith do you have in God? And the reason why those two words are interchangeable in most cases is because in the Old Testament, there was no word for faith in the original Hebrew language. So when they're talking about having faith, they're like, well, what's the closest word to faith? And they're like, well, it's kind of like trusting somebody, right? Right? I mean, having faith, I mean, faith basically means this. It means to believe something so much that you're, at, you're willing to 
change your whole life orientation for that thing. It's like you're living as if it's true. Okay, so if to have, for somebody to have faith in God is basically to say, I'm going to live my life as, as, as if this is actually true. That's what faith means. And so people said, well, the beginning of, of that has to be trust, so that's why the word trust and faith are interchangeable. Some people interchange the word faith with belief, right? They're like, oh, I have belief in God, right? But some people don't like to use the word belief because belief doesn't really ask you to reorient your life according to that one thing you believe in. So, you know, there's a lot of different words people use for the word faith and trust, okay? But most likely, especially in the Old Testament, those two words are interchangeable. Basically means to live like it's actually true. So when it comes to finances, right? Cots, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to stress about it because I know God's going to take care of it. I believe it so much that I'm actually going to sleep well tonight. Whereas I'm like, I don't have faith. I mean, I believe it in my head. I know that God's going to take care of us, but by the way you see me sweat beads, you know that I don't really believe it in the deep cores of my life, right? So that's the difference between having faith and trust and merely just believing. Those are the differences of these things, right? Um, but as what we're going to discover that is that in the New Testament, well, the entire Bible, but mostly in the New Testament, what you're going to discover is that, you know, have you met people who are people of great faith? You know, you're going through really tough times, and you're like, there's no way we're going to get out of this, and you share it with a friend, and this friend, who's a person of big faith, would say, like, say like it's going to be fine. God's going to take care of it. And in your mind, you're thinking, it's because this person doesn't have an IQ. It's because this person doesn't have all the information that I have. So you share all the information. Statistics show that da 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 and there's no way da 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 and if this bad thing happens, and all these bad things are going to follow that. It's a domino effect, and my whole world, world, world is ruined. And the person's like, yeah, I know that, but it's going to be fine. God's going to take care of you. And you're like, how do you have so much faith? It's like, I know why. It's because you're not going through it. I'm going through it. So it's easy for you to stand on the outside thinking everything's going to be okay when I'm the one that has to actually go through it, right? Until the day that that person of great faith is in that same situation and you realize, oh, no, no, this person really means it. Like, this person has cancer. But why is this person acting like everything's going to be okay? This person is a person of great faith, a person who has this belief that, you know what, I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to go crazy over this. Why? Because I know deep down in my bones that everything's going to be fine. Now, being fine, you could define that in different ways, right? But he's basically, this person is basically saying everything's going to be fine. Maybe it was your mom. Maybe it was your mom. You're like, you know, I just, this happened, this happened, this happened. My life is over. And she says, you know, maybe we just have to take it to the Lord. And you're like, no, I want you to fix the problem. I don't want to pray about it. No, the Lord, Lord, you know, he, she has, he, has a, he, has a, he has a plan. And you're like, yeah, and, and, and have you ever met somebody of great faith? Well, it turns out in the Bible, one of the main things of the Bible is this, that God wants you to be people of faith. If you ever met somebody like that, God, one of God's goals is to make you into people who don't stress over these things. That God wants you to know that, hey, look, I got your best interest in mind. Now, it might not be what you want, okay? It might not be the thing that you were hoping for, but trust me, I have your best interest in mind. So this is the whole idea here, right? That it seems like it's very important to God. And, and it's, it's really hard to find that message in the Old Testament, right? Uh, because in the Old Testament, it, it seems like, well, it seems like God is trying to accomplish something, but it doesn't seem like he's trying to accomplish this idea of, of trust. And that's because in the Old Testament, there's a lot of things called rules, laws, you see, in the Old Testament, God demanded obedience. Here are the rules, you follow it, and we're going to be fine. 
But in the New Testament, God has a whole different idea in this, okay? And, th- and that's that, okay, in the Old Testament, you were, I gave you laws and you just obeyed. But in the New Testament, we're not going to have that obedience type of relationship. I want you to obey me in a different kind of way, but it's not following rules that's going to establish this relationship. I want to, instead of having an obedience type of relationship, I want you to have a trusting kind of relationship. And there's a big difference between the two. Because to God, and I want you to get this, this is the main point of today's sermon is this, that faith is extremely important to Jesus. Faith is extremely important to Jesus. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You might be really good at keeping the Ten Commandments, and God's not going to be like, it's like, let's have a party for you. You're so good at following rules. I mean, that might have been true in the Old Testament, but nowadays, what God really wants is, yeah, okay, good, you're good at following rules, but are you good at trusting me? That seems to be the number one thing. Now, why is God so obsessed with this idea of trust? Why is God so obsessed with faith? And later on, when we go into the book of Luke, you're going to discover this, that faith is the one thing that Jesus looks for. And there's a lot of things that Jesus could be looking for, but faith seems to be the only thing he's looking for in this part of the story. And, but the thing is, why is he so obsessed with trust? You see, this reason goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So what I'm going to do is we're going to take you back to Genesis chapter 3. And the reason we're going to Genesis 3 instead of Luke is because there's a lot of backstory to the book of Luke. Okay, so we're going to start with Genesis 3. Okay, if you are familiar with Genesis 3, it's the third chapter of the book of Genesis, which means there's two chapters before chapter 3. Now, this is like, I woke up for this. Yes, you did. Okay, and that, because it's important. In the first two chapters of Genesis, God created paradise okay, and everything was good, and now we go to when that starts to fall apart, that's Genesis 3, okay, so let's take a look, you guys are familiar with this story, pay attention to the details, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden, now, if you are the serpent, and you want to get at God, you're like, oh, I hate God, what should I do, oh wait, he's almighty, he's powerful, I can't do anything to him, oh, what should I do, oh, I know, I know, how about I attack the very thing that he thinks is most important to him? Because that's not almighty, right? So he starts to attack this relationship that humanity had with God. And the way he does it is like this three-step thing. Okay, so let's take a look at for the first step. When he says, did God really say, what is he really doing here? What he's doing is he's questioning. He questions the woman's recollection. Woman, did, did God really say that? Are you sure? Are you sure he said that? Because I I remember a little differently. Like, okay. Okay, well, let's see see how the woman responds to this. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, which God didn't really say that, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die, which God didn't say, you know, the touch part. That's a whole different story. We'll talk about that in some other sermon, okay? And then the serpent's like, oh, perfect. You're falling right into my trap. This is what he says next. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Okay, so the serpent's like, here's attack number two. God didn't really say that. I mean, he might have said that, but that's not what he meant. You will not die. If God told you that that you're going to die after doing this, uh, well, that's not true. So what is the serpent doing here? The serpent is now getting the woman to question God. He's like, like, yeah, we're going to doubt God now. We're going to be like, hey, God, like, Eve, I, I don't know if you know this, but I think God is not that trustworthy. Like, oh, really? Yeah, 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 right? 
Oh, okay, well, let's see what the serpent does next. Okay, here we go. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now there's this thing that he's like, yeah, as a matter of fact, if you eat of this fruit, okay, it's going to open your eyes and you're going to be just like God. Now, this is really interesting because at this point, the woman looks at the whole situation and realizes, wait a minute, that's right, God is God and we are not. You mean if I eat this, I could be up there with him? I could be at the top of the, 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 the pyramid? I could be that, really? Maybe God told us not to eat of this so that he could claim that position all for himself. <gasps> I know what he's doing. He's holding out on us. So what is the serpent doing here? He's questioning God's intention. Maybe he told us not to eat from this tree, not, not, not for good intentions. Maybe he did it so that we could never achieve the level that he's at. You know, he's basically... So the serpent is planting these evil, these, these ideas, inception, you know, like these ideas into the, the mind and the hearts of these people, basically trying to get them to think that you can't trust God. Why? Because God doesn't want you to rise to greatness. The very first sin in the Bible is basically humanity looking at God thinking, he's holding out on us. We can't trust him. In other words, the original breakup of humanity between humanity and God was over a lack of trust. It was over a lack of trust. And so if Jesus comes to this earth to reverse that, to fix it, then the reconciliation of humanity and God, it has to be through trust, gaining trust, rebuilding trust, or like we like to call it faith, right? So if God, if Jesus is like, that something bad happened in Genesis 3, and through history we've been affected by it, what can we do to fix it then we always have to start from the place of, well, then maybe we need to start from a place of rebuilding that trust that was lost. And maybe we could start reversing the effects of it. Maybe that's what's going on. Yeah, that's what's going on. Then the people in the Old Testament are like, well, what about us? We've been following rules all along, and all of a sudden he changes his mind. And like, no, no, no. Sometimes rules are necessary to build up trust, okay? In the same way that I'm teaching my son right now, a lot of rules, like you can't do that. You can't put crayon in your mouth or that's my daughter, actually. My son who puts it up his nose. That's very different, right? Right? But it's like, you both can't do that, and that's a rule, okay? Why? Well, hopefully one day he'll grow up, you know, when he's 18, when he finally stops doing that, right? He'll, he'll say like, oh, you mean this thing could be toxic? Oh, this is not good for me. Oh, this can make me sick. Oh, dad, I trust you. You know, maybe that's what's going to happen, right? But we all have to start with rules at some point, and that's what humanity's been going through. In the Old Testament, God was giving us rules so that we could follow, so that's, you know, so we could know, know what's right and wrong, so we understand what, what could destroy us and what could give us life. But then eventually he's like, we're past that now. Now we're at a place where we're going to say, okay, now it's about trust. Now it's about faith. Okay, so that's what's been going on in history. Okay, now we're going to move to Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at the first 10 verses. Okay, and the reason why this is so, such a great, great story is because in this story is about a man, and you're going to be surprised by who this man is, well, I was surprised. I don't know if you will be, but I was surprised by about this man, okay, who goes down in history, recorded history, as the only person who has amazed Jesus in a positive way. The, the reason I say in a positive way is because, has caught that, is because there's another part of the Bible where Jesus was amazed, but it was like for a bad reason. It's like, oh, I can't believe he did that. And it says Jesus was amazed, right? But this is the only part in recorded history that tells us when Jesus was 
was amazed in a positive way, okay, about a person, about an individual, where he was like, whoa. I don't know how Jesus said, showed amazement, you know, like, whoa. I, I don't know. But he was super amazed. He was like, whoa, disciples, did you see that? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm going to be telling this story from now on, you know. Like, I don't know what could actually amaze Jesus, but in this story that we're going to look at today is the one instance where Jesus is actually amazed by a person. So I'm like, oh, i got to read about this. So I'm going to show this verse to you. We're going to start from verse 1 through 2. When Jesus had finished saying all this, he just gave a sermon in chapter 6, um, saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, which is like a city in the north uh, near the Sea of Galilee. There, a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, was sick and was about to die. Now, centurion, let me kind of pause and give you an idea of who centurions are. Centurions are leaders within the Roman Empire. They're called centurion because they oversaw 50 to 100 soldiers. So they're like a captain or they're like a, you know, they're they're a squad leader, if you want to put it that way, okay? Now, the way that the Jews saw these people was that they were evil. Now, I know... uh, this is going to sound kind of weird, but it's the equivalent of if the Nazis came into this land today and they, they took over our land, okay, and in order to make sure there's no uprising from the people, he placed his soldiers in our neighborhood and they're marching up and down all the time, and the person in charge of those people who are marching up and down, that would be the centurion. So you don't like these people. If you're a Jewish person, which Jesus was and his disciples were, you don't like centurions and you don't like the Roman soldiers because they're in your land. You don't like them, Okay. So in this story, the centurion, wherever he lives in Capernaum, he has a servant, and that servant is sick, okay? Uh, Are we we clear? Because I want you to know how much people hate these people, okay? The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come heal his servant. Now, this is interesting, okay? So centurion, his servant is sick, okay? Instead of him going out to talk to Jesus, saying, hey, Jesus, my servant's sick, he sends not just anybody. Who does he send? What does it say? Elders of the Jew, Jewish elders. These are religious rulers, respected people of the Jewish community to go talk to Jesus. Now, you're thinking this, because this is what I thought. Maybe you're not thinking like me, but this is what I was thinking. Sorry, I had coffee today. Like, okay. Okay. (laughs) This is what happened. This is what I think happened, okay? The centurion's like, Hey, I heard Jesus is in town. I heard he does these magic tricks. You know, he, he heals people. Oh, okay. Well, then. And he goes to the local synagogue and says, hey, you. You know, and he pulls out a knife or something. He's like, hey, if you don't go talk to Jesus on my behalf, I'm going to kill you. You know, like, I thought that's what happened, right? Because, remember, that's the kind of relationship they had. But it turns out that's not what happened because I read the next verse. This is what that says. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with them, these elders, okay? This man deserves to have you do this, heal the servant, why? Because he loves our nation and has built our synagogues. So Jesus went with it. Like, okay, this is what's going on. It's not like, hey, you better go. We're going to burn down your synagogue and your home. It's not like that. These people are like, Mr. Centurion, we would love to go do this on your behalf. Why? Because we love you. Why? Because you built our synagogue where we like to worship. You know, you love our country. Oh, thank you so much. You're like, these people, like, this is one strange centurion. He has a relationship a good relationship with the people that he's, the, the, the town he's occupying. Weird, I think, yeah. And so Jesus is intrigued by this, and he's like, okay, I'll see what this is all about. This is kind of strange. So he goes, and he's on his way to the centurion's house. But something else happens along the way. 
He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Now, what's going on here? A little more background. If you are Jewish, you had all these laws of the Old Testament that told you what is clean and what is unclean, what's kosher and what's unkosher, okay? And one of the big no-nos for Jewish people is that you cannot go into a house of a person who is not Jewish. You don't want to go into the house of somebody that's, that's, that's a Gentile. And so when Jesus is like, sure, I'll be right over, I'll go into your house, halfway there, the centurion's like, oh, wait, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. Okay, if he enters my house, and then people see what's happening, people are going to look at Jesus and say, ah, ooh, cooties, get away from us. And he has to go through this long cleansing ritual, and that may be too much trouble for him. So he's like, I can't let, I can't let Jesus go through this. Again, very strange centurion. He actually cares, right? So he sends his friends to meet him halfway and says, Jesus, stop. Don't go into this house. Centurion just, like, you know, brain fart, right? He just realized that you shouldn't be going in here because I, I know you mean well, and I like the fact that you're willing to sacrifice your reputation to go into this house. But the centurion realized you should not go in here. We, just, we appreciate that you're willing to go in, but just st stay right here. Okay, so really interesting stuff is, ha stuff is happening here, okay? And then he says something even more interesting. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. He says, I also know for a fact that if a Jewish rabbi and a Gentile, or a centurion in this case, right, they were met, they, they saw, people saw them interacting in the middle of the street, then that would also tarnish you. So that's why I sent my Jewish friends to meet with you. Like, this is the most considerate centurion in the world, right? Okay, and the, but the next line is even more interesting. He says, but, it says, say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. It was common practice back in those days that you have to go to the person who's sick, you lay your hands on the person, you pray for that person, and unless you do that, there's no chance, you know, on this side of heaven that, that anything good will happen, come to that person, right? But the centurion says, we're going to break that rule today. If there's any rule we're going to break, we're going to break that one rule. I know who you are, Jesus. If you can just tell me that it's going to be fine, then I'll take your word for it, and we're going to believe it to be true. Well, what do you mean, Centurion? Wait, wait, what, what's your thought process behind this? Explain yourself. Centurion would say, I would love to explain. Next verse. For I myself am a man under authority, we'll talk about that in a second, with soldiers under me. I told this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. What does this have to do with anything? Okay. Mr. Centurion, on his off days, before he became Mr. Centurion, okay, before he got that title, he would tell people, go, and no one would go. In the same way, if I tell you to go do something, you're not going to do it, because my words fall flat sometimes, Okay. When I tell somebody in my family to say, come, sometimes they don't come because sometimes my words fall flat, you know, because I have no authority sometimes, okay? But here's the thing. The minute he became an officer of the Roman Empire, he was under the authority of Caesar, the top guy, right? If, if he was under the authority of Caesar, now he had power. Does that make sense? So when I say go, he's not just, it's not just, this guy right here telling people to go, he, on behalf of the Roman Empire, is telling somebody to go, and they're like, we better submit or the Roman Empire is going to get me. So they go and go. And when this person, under the authority of the Roman Empire, says come, they have to come, because if they disobey, then the Roman Empire is going to get them. 
In the same way, if I'm driving and the person behind me is honking at me and says, pull over, I'm going to keep going, okay? But if that person has a badge, okay, and he says, pull over, I'm going to pull over. Why? Because that person is under the authority of the LAPD. I have to do what he tells me to do. Okay, that's the same idea here. If you're under the authority of somebody powerful, then you have to do what that person is telling you to do because, you know, that person isn't just representing that person. He's also representing the greater power that he's working under. Does that make sense? So when he's saying this, he's implying something else. You see, what he's implying here is, is Jesus, I know that you're working under the authority of somebody greater than sickness. That when you tell the disease to go away, then it goes away. I know you're working, you're under the authority of one who is greater than nature. This is his subtle way of saying this, okay? The centurion knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, we're only seven chapters into the story of Luke, okay? And Jesus has not made any declarations yet. He hasn't told anybody, like, hey, everybody, Son of God, me, right? He hasn't done that yet. That comes a lot later, okay? So, so it's only seven chapters in, and there's a guy in Capernaum who is not Jewish, who understands who Jesus is, even before Jesus declares who he really is. Okay, now here's a little more background that's going to even put more weight to what I just said right now. If you are a Roman citizen, that means you're under the authority of Caesar, Caesar, August, uh, Caesar Augustus at the time, okay? Do you know who Caesar Augustus is? He's the second emperor. Well, he might be, depending on how you count, he could be the first emperor. Okay, basically his father, Julius Caesar, okay, on the day he died, there's a comet that passed over, over, over Rome. And people are looking at that thinking, whoa, what does this mean? Whoa, double comet, what does that mean, right? And then, and then these people are like, we don't know what it means. But then Octavius, who eventually becomes Caesar Augustus, shows up on the scene and says, I'll tell you what it means. Of course there's a comet that flew over, my father, uh, over the city on the day my father died. You know why? Because that's a sign that my father is God, which makes me the son of God. And so for a long time, people refer to Caesar Augustus as the son of God. Okay, now, keep that in mind. This is why people were required to worship the Caesar because they were considered deity at the time. Okay, here is a Roman centurion who has, who's under the authority of Caesar Augustus, the, the quote-unquote son of God, okay? And he comes to Jesus and says, hey, I know that I'm working under quote-unquote the son of God, but I know who you really are. You are the real deal. I'm willing to put my life, because if anybody heard me saying this, if anybody saw me referring to Jesus the son of God, not only will I lose my job, I will lose my life. Like, my entire identity as a Roman citizen is under the assumption that I believe that, that, that Caesar is the, the son of God. But I know that Jesus is really the son of God. And so when, when this, this, this centurion shows up on the scene and he basically says, I know who you are, Jesus' response in verse 9 is this. When Jesus saw heard this, he was amazed. The only time in the Bible where Jesus is amazed at somebody's faith is in this part of the story. When he's looking at this person, right, who's like, here's code, you know, I know you're the son of God, the real son of God. My boss, not really, you really, you know, like, when, when that happens, they're like, Jesus is like, whoa. 
I am so amazed at your faith that you trust me for who I am. And I know by you trusting this, it could cost you your life. It could cost you your job, but your life. Oh my goodness. Oh. Now, he could have just stopped right there. Jesus could have just been like, good job. I'm amazed by you. End of story. But he doesn't stop there because he wants to turn this into a teaching moment to the other people who still don't get it, right? So this is what he says after that. And turning to the crowd with these squinty eyes, like, like you know, <laughs> he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. He's like, you, you Jews, you, you have the Bible, and, you know, and you've been following me for how many weeks now? Like, and you don't know who I... Well, how come this guy who's never read the Bible, how come this guy who's actually not even Jewish, how come this guy who's part of the enemy, how come this guy gets it, but all you guys don't? He looks at his disciples and realizes, you don't even know who I am yet. But this guy, somehow this guy knows. You see, this is a huge deal because the thing that made Jesus say, wow, was the depth of faith the trust that this person had in the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. I believe it so much that I'm willing to put my life on it. That's faith. Faith is being able to see something, believe it, and then reorient your entire life, even putting your life on the line for that sake. And so Jesus says, whoa, or whoa, or maybe he was lacking emotion. He was like, whoa. But I don't know, but he was amazed. And this is the only time in the Bible where that word is associated with Jesus in a positive sense, is from a centurion of all people. I'm, I'm sure Peter or, or John or some of the disciples would have been like, oh, I want to be the guy that went down in history as the guy of faith. No, 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 no. It was a centurion. Let's see how the story ends. Verse 10. Then the men who, have, uh, ha- who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Now, a lot of commentators will point this out, and I'll make sure this is clear. The point of the story is not the miraculous healing. The point of the story is the great faith. I think a lot of times we read this and we're like, faith, great, yeah, but look at this, somebody got healed, right? The whole point of the story is not the healing, although that was like the, the icing on top. The main point of the story is the great faith of the centurion. He put everything on the line to believe who he believed Jesus to be. He had great trust in Jesus and what, who he said who he was. So now you're thinking, I want to have faith like that. Oh, I I wonder if my faith is this big or this small. I I don't know. What what, what can I do to grow my faith? Well, I'm glad you asked because I have this short segment here called How Do We Grow (laughs) in Our Faith? Now, um, what I'm about to talk about is not found in the Bible, so I want you to put that out there right now. Okay, this is an observation that was made 20 plus years ago by some other churches and some groups of people. What they did was they took all these testimonies of people who said that, like, I had great faith, right? They looked at people with great faith, and they collected their testimonies, and they read through all of them, and they're like, huh, that's interesting. I could put these things in five different categories, and they're like, maybe these five categories are the things that moves us towards having great faith. Now, there could be a sixth one, okay? We're not saying that five is the only, or maybe you're like, hey, they overlap, there's only four, that's fine, okay? Okay, none of this is like absolute truth, okay? So this is just, I'm just letting you know, this is an observation, okay? So... Don't email me about, hey, where's this in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. These five things are talked about in the Bible, but there's no list that says this is how you grow your faith. Okay. Because I believe that if we know what these five things are, we can be more intentional about growing our faith. Because I pray that we all become people who would, Jesus will look at one day and say, wow, look at their great faith. I am amazed with you. I mean, that's our goal. Okay. So I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. 
Number one, biblical teaching. When you look at different testimonies, people would say, I was sitting in a, you know, in, in a church listening to a sermon. I was reading the Bible. I was in a Bible study. I was talking to my friends about a certain verse. And I thought, could that be true? And I actually acted on it. And it's, that journey took me on this faith growth thing. And so a group of people said, biblical teaching has been a very important part of, of their faith growth. So that's number one, biblical teaching. Number two, special relationships. What they discovered is that there's a group of people who said, you know, when it comes to my great catalyst for growing my faith, there was, I had a mentor in my life that really poured into me and that changed my life. Or, you know, my husband or my wife or my, you know, my, my boyfriend or my girlfriend, whoever it is, you know, they spoke some words to me that really changed my perspective and how I should approach my relationship with God. Or maybe it's my kids. They, like, my kids, they said something really simple, but... I realized how profound it was and it changed my life. Okay, or it could be, you know, it could be your pastor. You know, <laughs> yeah, he said something that was so good, you know, and that just changed my life. But a special relationship, it could be any kind of relationship, but when we talk to these people, these five people, uh, these, these hundreds of people, um, one of the, some small group of people said, hey, you know, I noticed that these special relationships had something to do with my, was a callus for my faith to grow. Okay, number three, spiritual disciplines. Um, a, just a few hundred years after Jesus died and rose again, the group of people in the church said, hey, you know what, I think we should start, start doing these rituals. Back then they called rituals, but eventually called them disciplines. That, you know, if we just started fasting, you know, maybe that will help us reorient ourselves. Or maybe if we start doing this thing called the discipline of silence, where we just spend a whole day in silence just hearing from God. Or, or maybe if we just start praying for our enemies, that's a discipline. Things that don't come naturally to you. They're like, if we just practice these spiritual disciplines, and there's a whole list of them, okay? Um, like, just something that requires discipline in your faith, right? That makes, that puts God, you know, makes God more clear to you. He's like, some people said, you know, I started practicing these spiritual disciplines, and that really helped me, move, move me towards having great faith. Number four, service to God. You're like, you know, I don't know if God is really calling me to do this, but I decided to join the worship team. Or I decided to go on a mission. Or I decided to do this. I decided to do that. And it's so out of your comfort zone that you, you did it and you're like, I don't know if this, you know, and so you're so dependent on God. God, I have no idea what I'm doing. Why did I sign up for this? And because you're so dependent on God in that situation, you discover like, oh, wow, I could really rely on God. I, wow, God is so good. He showed up when I really asked for him to be here. Wow, that's so good, right? So the fourth thing is service to God. And finally, pivotal circumstance. Now, Pivotal circumstances, this is one thing that you can't recreate. It's something that happened to you that you can't control. Uh, for example, 9-11 um, happened, and now you're like, I wonder if there's more to life than just what, you know, what we do, like make, making money. Or, or maybe a family member passed away, and you're like, you know, going to that person's funeral has really got me thinking about what's most important in life. Or maybe it's something good, like a birth of a child. Like, this can't be by accident. Oh, no, there, God must be involved in this. There, there has to be something going on here. You know, or maybe, um, I, I don't know, um, Cleveland wins the championship, and you're like, oh, there is no God. <laughs> you know, and that actually destroys your faith. I don't know. I don't know what you're... But it's some pivotal circumstance that happens that makes you think deeper about the things that are happening. Or maybe you're going through a really tough time. And maybe it's a combination of these five things. You're going through a really tough time. And so it's a pivotal circumstance. But 
you had a special relationship with somebody in your life group and somebody says, hey, you know, can I pray for you? And for some reason, when that person prayed for you, you know, you, you, you gain some kind of peace inside of you. And you're like, what is this? God, is that you? And it and jumpstarts your faith. So these five things, this is the five things, like I said, there could be a sixth one. Maybe two of these could be combined. <clears throat> Maybe it's none of these things. Uh, I don't know, okay? But this is what has been observed by the church, okay? And I just wanted to put that out there. But here's the thing. How can, we optimi- how can we optimize experiencing these five things? Like I said, the last one you really can't control, okay? So let's assume that that can't happen, okay? But the top four, how can we make it so that we can optimize this? Because let me tell you, other than the first one, it's impossible to do those things on a Sunday morning. It's impossible, okay? But what we've discovered, and we discovered this years ago when Pastor Lori and I were talking about where, where should we take this church, we discovered that the best place to create this kind of environment has to be in a more intimate setting, and that's why we created this thing called life groups. Life groups. And maybe if you're not part of this church, you call it small groups. We call it life groups because we think that that's where you can have those special relationships where people are like, hey, you know, and they check in on you. How are you doing today? Can we pray for you? Hey, there's a verse that I was looking at the other day. Can you help me wrestle with this? Because I don't understand this verse. Could this be true? Or maybe you had that pivotal circumstance, but you don't know how, how to make sense of it. And so you talk to your group, group, can you pray for me? I, I don't know what to do with this. This is the beauty of something that meets together once a week or once every other week and talks about these things. What it does is that increases the chance of you actually encountering at least one of those five things on a weekly or other, you know, monthly basis or I don't know how often you meet. Because this is so important to us because we want you to be people of faith because that's what God wants for you guys. Because ultimately what we're looking for is you to have a life that's full of faith. We want God to look at you and say, I'm amazed in so-and-so's life. It's like, look at you. I remember where you used to not trust me on anything, but look at you now. And it's a process. It's not like once you join a life group, everything's going to be fine. I've been part of a life group for three years, and I still sweat beads about <laughs> finances, okay? And the same with my wife. She still have a, has a hard time trusting God in health-related things, okay? But our goal is that we want to please God, because there's a verse in the book of Hebrews, this is chapter 11, verse 6, very important verse. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. This is the thing that you need to have. You could be good at following the Ten Commandments. You know, you could have memorized a lot of verses. Two thumbs up for you because I can't do that. Okay, you could be good at a lot of things. You could be great at praying um, illnesses away. Great, that's good. Okay, we need that, Okay. But if you don't have faith, God is not impressed by it. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. These are the people who are like, give me more reasons to trust in you, God. I just want to seek you out. I want to know more about you. I want to have that relationship with you. What can I do to have that deeper relationship with you? I want to please you. Throughout the Bible, there's a theme that says you need to have this trusting relationship with God. Even the parts in the Old Testament that talk about, you know, like, just obey, just obey these rules, just obey, 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 right? Was eventually pointing us to this one area that says, but that's going to lead you to a place where you could trust God. Trusting God is the most important thing that you could do. And everything else kind of hangs from that. 
Because Jesus will tell you to do some pretty crazy things. He says, I want you to love your enemies. And you're like, well, won't that put me in a place where people take advantage of me? He's like, yeah, I guess you're going to have to trust me. There's that word again, trust. Give to people, don't expect anything back. Well, th- doesn't that make me poor? Yeah. Well, th- I don't think I'm going to enjoy that life. Jesus says, well, I guess you're going to have to trust me. There's, there it is again, Trust. Everything that God wants you to do starts with the foundation of faith, of trust. Because that's the only way we could please God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Amen.